0: This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
1: Hey, hey, I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. A show where we talk about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. And a heads up to listeners, this segment contains mentions of sex. It's no surprise to anyone that it's been a really bad year for television. The strikes really did a number on us. And for those who love TV like me, it's been so bad that I started watching anime and I don't even like cartoons But lo and behold, this fall, I finally got something new and juicy to watch. And I want you to know about it. It's called Fellow Travelers. It's a miniseries on Showtime that's giving the people what they want. This historical romance spans from the height of McCarthyism in the 50s to the More is More era of the 1980s. But the story centers on the tumultuous relationship between two men in Washington, D.C., Hawk, a career government man played by Matt Bomer.
2: I'm no Red. I'm a war hero. Include that in the register.
1: And Tim, an aspiring McCarthyite played by Jonathan Bailey.
2: I interned for three months at the Star Mm -hmm. in the mailroom. I have a degree in political science and history. I think I should aim a little higher, don't you?
1: Tim wants to break into D.C. politics, and Hawk takes him under his wing in more ways than one. Both Hawk and Tim are in the closet during the time of the Lavender Scare, a moral panic raised by Senator Joseph McCarthy, who sought to expel gays and lesbians from government service. And that puts their budding romance and their livelihoods at risk.
2: One of them really loves having sex with men, but can't sort of conceive of falling in love with a man.
1: This is Ingu Kang. TV critic for The New Yorker and someone whose TV opinions I trust wholeheartedly. She wrote a glowing review of fellow travelers.
2: And the other one just wants to be loved by anything and everything and wants to be subsumed. And you're just like, my guy, this is like not the guy for you. And yet they're so hot together. So you really have to root for them to be together.
1: After a long stretch of shows and movies obsessed with multiverses and infinite possibilities, comes this show about America's very real and not so distant past. A show that asks us to examine the human cost of our politics, then and now. Ingo, welcome to It's Been a Minute.
2: Hi, thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, my pleasure, my privilege.
1: <laughs> It's been a pretty bleak year for television. It's also been kind of paltry because of the strikes, so there wasn't really anything getting made. But one of the oases of our 2023 TV desert, for which you wrote a glowing review for The New Yorker, is Fellow Travelers on Showtime. Fellow Travelers is one of the most absorbing dramas of the year. I feel like you want a historical drama to be a world or a series of worlds that you can lose yourself in. And I think this show really has that. But like, what are the qualities that make historical drama immersive for the viewer?
2: Part of that immersiveness for me really comes from the fact that you can tell how these characters have been shaped by history because they're almost sort of like chiseled by the historical circumstances mm-hmm. around them. I think one of the really great things that the show does very indirectly, but also, Very consistently, is trace in the background gay progress from the 50s to the 80s. And I think there's a point maybe in the 70s where they sort Mm -hmm. of talk about the term gay, right? Because it is a term where people are like, oh, is this like what we're supposed to call ourselves now? Like, we're not supposed Mm -hmm. to say homosexual anymore. And of course, the 20th century (laughs) has been full of these sort of relabelings of certain minority groups. And you can sort of see how these larger historical forces play out in terms of like these characters particular quirks or idiosyncrasies their per- like very individual wants and needs and like mm. that feels so real to me you know i mean maybe this is going like a little bit too far afield but if i sort of think of myself like uh-huh. back in the 1800s or something i always think like who is the person that i would be because there is no way that i could be yeah. myself a woman born in america right. <laughs> in the 1980s right and so it's just fascinating to see these like very relatable personalities so completely informed mm. by their mm. time period.
1: That's a really good point. Something that you don't always think about yourself in that way. Like I don't always think about myself as specifically a product of my time and era, but it's like I see it so clearly with the characters on this show in the way that you describe.
2: And I think Tim is such a perfect example because Tim was played by Jonathan Bailey. He's the guy that... You know, he's the McCarthyite. He is so invested in being subsumed by some larger organization or some larger Mm -hmm. campaign. He wants to
1: join something, he wants to be a part of something.
2: I don't think he even wants to belong. I think he utterly wants to be taken over by something Mm -hmm. else. And so, you know, initially when he's growing up on Staten Island, it's Catholicism. Mm. And then it's McCarthyism. And then left-wing activism during the Vietnam War. Is it a campaign to get AIDS more recognized by the government? He's just sort of flailing around. And when you find that he actually finally at last finds a calling that is sort of worthy of his passion – it's so beautiful and so satisfying. Hmm.
1: That's such a beautiful point. I mean, that character of Tim is like it, he's he's my favorite character on the show. You single out Jonathan Bailey's performance as Tim in your review for the New Yorker. Like, what makes his journey specifically so compelling for you that it stands out in such a way on the show?
2: I think what Jonathan Bailey does so beautifully is every time you think that you have figured Tim out, you know, he goes to these bars and he orders milk and you're just like, my God, like, get a life. (laughs) Every time you think that you have figured him out, you're like, oh no. I think it's truly like in the first episode where Hawk and Tim initially meet each other at a election night party (laughs) for Eisenhower and they're sort of like talking at the bar. And then the next day they sort of just happen to see each other and they talk and hawk basically figures out this man is gay and interested in me Mm -hmm. and tim says something like i'm gonna go to mass now oh i should leave soon anyway job interview it's noon mass at saint joseph's and hawk says i'll spend the rest of the afternoon picturing you kneeling in prayer i'll spend the afternoon picturing you kneeling in prayer And there is just like a smile, like a really, really small smile that Tim allows himself, where you can tell that this is the moment at which he has been recognized and he is desired. Mm. And there is just like this very brief moment of like absolute happiness that infuses his whole body. Mm. And you're just like, oh, we are in the presence of an actor.
1: Mm, that is such a good moment to highlight. I mean, <laughs> I think that there's something in the timeline focus that makes this specific show so good. Like it covers some really interesting history, but they also really consider how that time ages the characters.
2: Yeah, I think what I really love is that by the time you get the full picture of their relationship over those 30 years as they go in and out of each other's lives, it feels really real, you know? Mm. Like, that was, like, the aspect of the show I was, like, the most scared of to be honest, Mm -hmm. because I was like, are these actors who I believe are, you know, in their 30s and 40s and honestly sometimes, like, not in the best old age makeup, are they going to really feel to me, like, people in their 50s and 60s with all of that heaviness and Mm. regret and for me it really pulled it off and (laughs) i'm nodding nodding, yeah
1: because i'm like i feel like hawk in the earlier scenes i'm like i see he's got some things that he's wrestling with but he's kind of like don drapering through life to a certain degree but yeah no that regret is hitting hard in the 80s and you can see it So for listeners who don't know, and this isn't a big spoiler, as time passes, Hawk chooses to pass as straight and basically live on the down low, marry a woman and continue to work in the government.
2: Has children.
1: Has children, exactly. But the show almost seems to posit that like for all of the obvious benefits and power that that presents, when his life is contrasted with the life we see that Tim has, even though Tim is dying of AIDS basically at that point... He has a full life. Um, It looks like he has the kind of full life to a certain degree that maybe Hawk never thought was possible for
2: himself. And he has a sense of purpose that Hawk doesn't.
1: Tim can be his full self in a way that Hawk absolutely cannot.
2: Yeah. And I think part of like what you are able to sort of contrast as gay progress happens in this country and as people are able to be more, you know, truthful versions of themselves. and maybe. I don't know, lie to everyone around them less. Hmm.
3: You can sort of mm-hmm. see
2: that Tim, as he is becoming more and more out, is able to put all of moralizing compulsions, I guess, really, <laughs> in a positive direction. And you see that Hawk is sort of like unable to move along with history. Hmm. He's sort of stuck in some ways in the past that has scarred him. And made him to be a sort of survivor in some of the ugliest ways
3: mm. yeah
2: so a lot of like what we get with the show is you see these sort of analogs of hawk with much greater power which are basically roy Cohn and joseph mccarthy yes. who are posited here as closeted men who are going after other gay men so that they can deflect suspicion Mm. from themselves, Mm -hmm. right? And you also see probably in like Hawk's lowest moment doing something quite similar. And you sort of wonder as homosexuality is more accepted, is he going to find it within himself to be a more tender person, a better person, a person who (laughs) actually deserves the things that he has. Mm. And I think that's truly like one of the greatest tensions or like the greatest moments of suspense for the show, you know, is Hawk going to be able to adapt to the seventies or the eighties? And if he isn't, then how much can he essentially continues really killing a certain part of himself?
3: Hmm. hmm.
1: There's a real like diversity on this show of ways that the gay men sit with their, Queerness. They're always making some sort of negotiation or doing some type of calculation. The show is doing something really interesting and kind of is departing from what I see as somewhat of a norm these days, where like many mainstream LGBTQ narratives aim to show gay communities together, exuberant, warring against oppressive forces. Whereas this show gives us a different experience of all of these different gay men and they're trying to kind of like hide and play into mainstream norms because they could lose their jobs if they're outed. There's a lot of like intra-community conversation that's happening on the show that feels a little bit more rich than just a group of people who are magically getting along because they all share one identity aspect.
2: We were talking earlier about, you know, what makes this historical drama different from other historical dramas? Like, Uh why is this like the special girl, right? (laughs) And what is so fascinating about this particular beginning time period is that there is no set definition of what is gayness what is queerness what is homosexuality what is a homosexual Hmm. life and so all of these people are just sort of feeling their way through the dark and trying to figure out how they can make it work for themselves so we meet for example one character at a party for a bunch of queer Washingtonians and one of them says well like I'm a religious guy, but I also am celibate.
0: I have God. Oh, I I thought you... I am. Then how do you manage... I'm celibate. You have to decide what matters most to you.
2: And that is like the way that he can sort of square his own needs Mm. with his own identity. And so uh, this is like maybe one of the aspects of the show that I love the most because it felt so true to life. Because there had not been this codification yet of what queerness is. And the only thing that they really know is that they have particular desires. And they don't know really what to do with those desires. But they know that they can be persecuted for having them. And it's just like <laughs> uh, a question that is like both so... Philosophical, like what does queerness mean, especially when you don't have Mm. defining texts or defining images to help you, to help guide you? And at the same time, it is a question of survival, right?
1: Hmm. Hmm. To that point, it makes me think about the character of Marcus, who's like a journalist friend of Hawks. And he's one of the few black characters on the show. And he's always negotiating his blackness and his gayness out in the world, but also in his work. And I've enjoyed seeing the black gay world that they inhabit. I wonder, how do you see the character of Marcus within the world of fellow travelers?
2: I wish that he felt a little bit less didactic. I think that, you know, earlier I said that the show doesn't feel didactic, but I think when there are those like little moments, I feel like Marcus is sort of the character that he's sort of like the vector through which a lot of those like lessons are born. I think the idea that like he feels like he has to either choose his blackness or choose his queerness in his public life I thought was really fascinating because he basically believes, probably correctly, that he can't really be an out black gay man because it will in some way validate a lot of his points about racism and he can sort of have more authority to speak about the racism in DC and how these, you know, anti-segregationist policies that are supposed to be enforced are not being enforced. How did you feel about Marcus?
1: I see like in like the story sense how Marcus can be like a foil for Hawk and also like an alternative path for Hawk. When I look at Marcus and I look at his relationship with Frankie and I see that make their black gay DC world, I keep thinking oh, there's just so much more here to get into. Like there's so much there that I'm just like, I agree. I think that for what Marcus is, I think that the show is doing a lot with regard to like trying to bring in history and give him like a world to inhabit and be a part of, a, apart from Hawk's world. But I also think that like, I don't know, I would watch like eight seasons of a show about Marcus's life, but that's just me. <laughs> Okay, I cannot let this conversation wrap up without asking you about these sex scenes on Fellow Travelers. I have been loving them. They are dynamic. They serve the story and they're hot. But also, sometimes I feel like when you see gay sex in mainstream epics, sometimes the sex scenes can be a little sanitized. I feel like these are really dynamic and hot in a way that doesn't feel like it's necessarily specifically aimed at like comforting a straight audience you know thank god (laughs) you described the sex scenes in fellow travelers as gleefully creative and i agree what do you think makes the sex scene on this show so gleefully creative
2: i don't remember at which point i observed this but if you sort of tally up those scenes they do a different thing in every single one of those scenes i noticed (laughs) i noticed (laughs) But I actually wonder if part of what makes the sex scene so good is that they are talking the entire time. Hmm. You, I have my hand. <laughs> uh, I am thinking right now. My hand
1: is on my you have on my forehead. I'm sitting here like what? But that is such a good
2: point. <laughs> I mean, you learn so much about the characters, right? And I think this is like a really, really great illustration of who Hawk is. He wants to be the top. He wants to be like the guy who picks. He wants to be in charge of like the acts. And he's generally the top in their shenanigans. And then you sort of wonder, like, is this all it's going to be for them? And then sometimes there's like a moment where he's like, actually, now it's your turn. And you're sort of like, wow, what is this saying about their relationship at this point? Is hawk figuring out a way to be like an actual person and not just like a damaged jerk
1: Yeah, you know, we've been talking about this phenomenal wonderfully done high quality limited run miniseries and i'd be remiss if i didn't mention that that's a very specific type of programming <laughs> and that also requires a specific kind of budget after all of the turmoil and change in hollywood this past year It kind of feels less and less likely that series like this, that will be made. One of my editors remarked that this series, Fellow Travelers, feels like it was greenlit in another era, like a bygone era. Is this kind of miniseries The Last of a Dying Breed?
2: You know, I get this question a lot now. Mm -hmm. And the only answer I really have is I hope not. (laughs) Part of like why Prestige TV became a thing is because the... Middle brow segment of the movies, like essentially mm. the deep budgeted or like the medium budgeted adult dramas that we used to have in the nineties, mm-hmm. have disappeared. Right? Yeah. So this is like now where people who want grown up entertainment go for what they are no longer getting at the movies. In large part, people still want that stuff somewhere.
1: Thank you so much, Ingu. So great to have you.
2: Thanks for having me and thanks for letting me talk about this beautiful show.
1: That was Ingu Kang, television critic at The New Yorker. Coming up, singer-songwriter Olivia Dean joins the show for an intimate chat and IBAM's first ever live in-studio performance. Stay tuned.
4: acorn tv isn't just good it's brilliant with exceptional television from around the world their romances are more charming their mysteries cozier their noirs more gripping and their comedies cleverer more clever oh you get it acorn tv is brilliant stories told brilliantly visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code npr so in a nutshell acorn tv brilliant
1: hey hey I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show where we talk about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. Next, we're going to do something a little different, an IBAM unplugged, if you will. That means a live performance and intimate conversation with an up-and-coming singer-songwriter. And gather around, because I feel like you're going to be hearing a lot more from her in the future. While most popular music right now gives club, dance, floor, and oots, oots which has its place, this artist is embracing the softer side of pop and paying homage to the soul singers who came before her. Today, I'm speaking with Olivia Dean. She's a Mercury Prize finalist who's performed at Glastonbury and even won the praise of Sir Elton John himself. Her music is sweet and layered, bringing in sounds that reflect her British and Jamaican Guyanese upbringing. After a bevy of covers and singles, Olivia released her debut album, Messy. Earlier this year. On the last leg of her first American tour, she and her guitarist, Finn Zeffarino Burchell, stopped by NPR West in Culver City for a little chat about respecting the subtlety in soft pop. Olivia, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Hello. <laughs> We are so excited to have you here today. Um, I want to start with first things first. So your stage name is also your actual name. I know. First and last, Olivia Dean. But your full name is Olivia Lauren Dean. Lauren with a Y. That is correct. After Miss Lauren Hill herself. Yeah, I wonder. So now how did you get that name and what has it meant to you? Wow, great
5: question. And it's funny you asked that because yesterday we were in San Francisco and I was walking down the street and I saw a poster that said that Lauren Hill was in town because she was playing these run of shows in San Francisco and I was like, Oh my God, we're in the same place right now. And like obviously I'm not related to her in any way, shape, or form. I have inherited like nothing from her. We're not <laughs> we're not linked. When I was in the womb, I think my mum was listening to a lot of Lauren Hill and my mum was like that can be Olivia's middle name.
1: Mm -hmm. I imagine your mom was listening to a lot of the miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Was that an album that was like on repeat in your house when you were growing up? Mm -hmm. Absolutely on repeat, still on repeat.
5: (laughs) Um, And when I was making my album, I think it was a reference for me, not necessarily sonically, but... I had spoken a lot with Matt, who I ended up finishing the album with, about
1: albums that felt like a North Star. Mm. Thanks, Lauren. (laughs) Cheers, love. (laughs) (laughs) To stay on your childhood for a second, you famously went to the Brit School. For our American listeners, it's like LaGuardia High School in New York City, a.k.a. the Fame School. Fame! Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, the alumni of the Brit School are like a who's who of British talent, like Amy Winehouse, Adele, Leona Lewis, Tom Holland, Ray. What was it like to attend, and how did it help you get your start in the industry? Attending
5: the Brit school was like probably one of the best things that I ever did. Strangely, I think people think it's like this kind of secret society, but it's a really a free school Um, in South London, in Croydon. You apply online and it's just such an inspiring environment to be in because suddenly you go from being the weird person in your school who wants to sing in all the assemblies that everybody's like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly everybody's the weird person in the assembly and then you're allowed to Go even further with your weirdness
1: because <laughs> it's encouraged. You know, to that end, what were you listening to when you were a kid? Like you grew up in—I'm gonna butcher the name. I'm gonna try not to. Is it Walthamstow? Wow, that's great, <laughs> great. So
5: yeah. East London. East London. Yeah, London yeah.
1: has a very rich musical history, but also East London has its own flavor. Like, how did the East London of your childhood shape your your taste and interest in music?
5: East London people stereotypically have a kind of. How do you explain it? <laughs> like you know the way that Adele talks. It's quite like um. It's got a nice lilt to it. it a, has lilt a little with a little with
1: punctuation, a little staccato to it.
5: Punctuation. I wouldn't say we're like rough, <laughs> but straight to the point. There's an edge. There's an edge, There's yes. an edge. There's, right. there's an edge. Thank you, Finn. So I think that definitely seeps into my lyrics and into my personality as a person. But growing up, I think I had a very eclectic music taste, which, yeah, made me feel like I could make anything I wanted. Mm. I didn't feel like because of the way that I looked or... Or anything or who I was that I had to make R&B or that I had to, you know, I like all sorts. For me growing up being mixed race and then being in East London, I had to let go of genre in terms of starting to create. I know that my music has a genre. I'm not saying it's like this crazy left material. I'm aware (laughs) I'm making pop music, but I just in the sense of like allowing yourself to create freely, you know to try to not put yourself in a box before you make it.
1: I see that a lot in general with like sort of British pop, R&B, pop and B. Like, Mm. do you think of yourself as having a specifically London sound in that sense?
5: I think so. Sometimes I can't help in the lyric saying very London things. A really good example of this, which has been so funny because we've been touring in the States here. (laughs) I have a song called Slowly and in one of the first Mm. lines it's like, I could have opened up, cried and almost been myself, but I took the piss instead. And took the piss yeah. is like, you know, I made a joke. Yeah. But some people think I'm saying I went to the toilet, like I just, I I had a wee. And I've seen people <laughs> cover the song and they've actually changed it to, and I took a piss <laughs> instead. And I'm crying, laughing, because I'm like, no. Um,
1: not quite.
5: That's not, there that is quite. a very American
1: interpretation though. When you say piss, you either have made someone angry or yeah, like you said, having a wee.
5: Yeah. But that's, that's so funny to me. Um, but I've got to keep that stuff in the lyrics, you know, because that's how I would say it. There's a lyric in one of the songs, Messy, about, you know, going 71 down the M25. And
3: 71 down the M25 Ignoring the noisy driver, mm,
5: Which is... Classic motorway <laughs> in, in London, but I'm here in, you know what I mean, Toronto, and I see people going, Down the M25. I'm like, okay, babe.
1: <laughs> it's music, music is the universal language, it's the universal. It doesn't
5: matter, it doesn't matter. It's just funny.
3: No need to be ready. It's okay if it's messy. I'm alone.
1: I want to talk about the journey of your debut album, Messy. Um, it has mm-hmm. a very pretty and organic sound with excellent lyricism. How did this album start within you? Being completely
5: honest, I went into making it feeling um, incapable. I just was in a real low self-esteem version of myself that was like, I can't make an album, like, I'm not good enough. So not great place to start creating from. <laughs> um... But I pushed through it and just tried to write honestly about how I was feeling about the main themes were falling in love again. Hmm. And that felt like an obstacle because I think I'd previously convinced myself that the best music was made, you know, in breakup. Because i that's where I'd existed for so long. Mm-hmm. And then I wasn't going through a breakup anymore and I was happy and I was like, well, who wants to hear about that? <laughs> like it's so much more difficult to find the nuance in happiness. Hmm. So I thought about that for a while, but then I was like, no, it is interesting, learning how to be vulnerable again and opening up to somebody. And then in the process of finishing the record, I was just like, just get it done. Like, stop. (laughs) Stop, you know, worrying about it being perfect or, like, so profound or so excellent To the extent where you're being so reductive, you're not finishing anything, allow it to be messy. And Messy was actually the last song that I wrote for the album. And then I was like, oh, it's done. You have to listen to that feeling in your belly and know when she's saying, this is good, this is good. Or when you write something and you just wanna to listen to it over and over and over and over again.
1: Speaking of the album, I wanna break down one of your songs, the hardest part.
0: Could
5: mm-hmm. we hear it? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's Finn? do it. Let's do it. Finn's picking up his guitar now. Um, ready? Mm-hmm.
3: me up to meet you, static on the phone Normally I need you this time, I don't wanna go Cause lately I've been growing into someone you don't know You had the chance to love her, but apparently you don't, no you don't So even if I could, wouldn't go back where we started I know you're still waiting Wondering when my heart is Praying things won't change But the hardest part is You're realizing Maybe I, maybe I ain't the same And what you're waiting for Ain't there no more anyway Held you up so highly Deep under your spell Your opinions would define me But this time I made some for myself Cause lately I've been certain There's no further to go Yeah, you had the chance to love me But apparently you won't No, you won't So even if I could Wouldn't go back where we started I know you're still waiting Wondering My heart is praying things won't change But the hardest part is you're realizing Maybe I, maybe I ain't the same And what you're waiting for ain't there no more anyway And it's okay I'm not gonna remember you that way You say I'm different now, like, that's so strange. But I was only 18, and you should have known that
0: I was always
3: gonna change. So even if I could, wouldn't go back where we started. I know you're still waiting, wondering when my heart is Praying things won't change, but the hardest part is You're realizing maybe I, maybe I ain't the same Ain't there no more, I ain't there no more Ain't there no more, I ain't there no more more. Ain't there no more the hardest part is you're realizing maybe I, maybe I ain't the same, and what you're waiting for ain't there no more anyway.
1: That was lovely. That was so cool. How did the sound come together? Did the words come first? Did they come together? Did the melody come first? Because it does have a little bit of uh bittersweet quality to it like you're happy that you grew but mm. you're sad because you can't experience what in your mind could have been mm. yeah how did that come together
5: i wrote this song in denmark with two excellent songwriters called max and bastian um, max wolfgang and bastian langback we say their full name so people know and i wanted it to feel fluffy and like have this kind of like Diana Rossi
3: kind of, dit, dit,
1: dit, 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 like, staccato-ness, you know. Oh, that's and that, very much in the video, too. I mean, the video has this, like, black and white, like, mm-hmm. Supremes kind of, like, feel to
5: it. I'd had a conversation with my mum where she told me that her her sister and their cousin used to dress up as the three degrees oh, yes, in their room. Yes. And have the hairbrushes, when will I see you again? (laughs) And I just thought that was so beautiful. And I love, like, Motown girl groups. And I was like, wow, what if I could do a video where I was all three of the Supremes? (laughs) And this just felt perfect for that song.
1: It sounds at home in the rest of the album. So, I mean, it, it all worked out. Coming up, the Caribbean history that textured the album. And another live performance from Olivia Dean.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast
4: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle, find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing.
3: No matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com.
4: Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. You talk about following your gut,
1: and that makes me think about something else that I have noticed about your music. Like, pop music in general right now is in a very escapist, dance-heavy space. Mm -hmm. And I do love that. Mm -hmm. I do love it. I can't even lie. I think we all do. But, you know, people contain multitudes. We have different modes. It feels like your music is asking us to kind of take a step back from that
0: and actually mm-hmm.
1: reflect on ourselves and on our relationships. Mm-hmm. But it's still satisfyingly pop. I-, I wonder, like, how do you think about your your music and your sound, your current sound, within the greater landscape of what we're listening to right now across the pop landscape?
5: That's a brilliant question.
1: Um, I,
5: as you said, can recognize that a lot of pop music now exists in that space, mm-hmm. and I enjoy it. It's just never been me and never will be. I love soul music and not in the black and white sense, I guess, it's like, you know, soul as a genre, but music that fills you up hmm. and allows you to, as you said, reflect and express your emotions to other people like Bill Withers, what a gift to this earth, hmm. you know, like Carole King. I just think I've always been obsessed with like timeless songs because I started doing musical theatre but also covers mm. I really saw songs as like such a tool for me to help me to understand how I was feeling and like get something out and so all I've ever wanted to do is try to craft those little things and just add them to the river of songs that you know flows throughout the whole of time <laughs> just pour, pour my little cup in there you know and hope they flow on and Yeah, I don't know. I think when I first started making stuff, I definitely was told by, you know, music label people, those classic people that everyone talk about, like, that's pastiche, you know, don't try and do the soul music thing. It's been done and... It's not forward thinking and experimental. I don't wanna be experimental.
3: i that's not, not
5: <laughs> I think other people do that so great and I love it. I just know that I like songs and um, live musicians and chords and yep. yeah. I
1: just like it. I like what I do. <laughs>
5: so <laughs>
1: Something that I definitely get the sense that you like based on the production style that you've employed on your album is a lot of instrumentation. It has a very pretty organic sound. Mm. How many instrumentalists in total are featured on the album? Because, I mean, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot. Lots of different mix of humans my
5: core band is there's four finn dash and joel oh and me three sorry <laughs> and i'm in the band i played percussion on the album hey. i played some vibraphone on the album i played some timpani on the album tambourine i love percussion so much we just had all sorts of people come in amazing brass section come in we had somebody come and play steel pan and play with that cross culture so it was like we had the steel pans going like representing the Caribbean side but then it was like the horns doing this kind of orchestral kind of British march like the Queen's Jubilee <laughs> and like it's just fun you know to experiment with like the instruments as another language and you know what you're trying to say in the song.
1: Mm, like a, like adding as much to the character in the world of the song as a lyric can.
5: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Exactly. Music's supposed to be fun, so we just had fun making this album.
1: I have another song of yours that I really love called Carmen. It's the very last song on the album, and it mm-hmm. tells the story of your grandmother. She uh, immigrated from Guyana, As a young woman, as part of the Windrush generation, for those who don't know, the Windrush generation is a generation of Caribbean people who migrated, or people from British colonies, but many Caribbean people who migrated to the UK in the wake of the 1948 British Nationality Act, which gave people in the British colonies the right to work and live in Britain. Could we hear the song? Do you have the time to play the song? Why not? That'd be great. Yeah, I'd love to hear the song. For you, Brittany, anything. Oh, thank you. Thank you.
3: (laughs) First time on a plane, 18, you came, you found a door and held it open. way to know how to make a home in someone else's motherland Mm. oh you transplanted a family tree and a part of it grew into me you're stronger than I'll ever be never got a jubilee I'll throw it for you come in come in I will, the only place I want to stand is holding on to grandma's hands Let them adore you, come in, come in, I will Come in, come in Look at all the trouble that you made, carved your initials in this island. But the bix don't taste the same And we're all talking to our phones Mm -hmm. But you reigned over a family tree And I'll carefully carry the seeds You're stronger than I'll ever be Never got a jubilee I'll throw it for you Come in, come in, I will The only place I want to stand Is holding on a grandma's hands Let them adore you Come in, come in, I will Stronger than I'll ever be Never got a jubilee. I'll throw it for you. Come in, come in, I will. The only place I want to stand is holding on a grandma's hands. Let them adore you. Come in, come in, I will.
1: <laughs> that was great. That was great. That was really, really, really beautiful. I mean... <sighs> there is um, oh, just that that lyric about about you know never. Never got a jubilee. I'll mm-hmm. throw it for you, Carmen. Oh, it's so beautiful. Um, mm. as an American, I only learned what a jubilee was like a year ago. <laughs> because yeah, there, that is a very there's a big British thing. Yeah, it's like a but, celebration
5: for the monarch, right? Right. So it was interesting at the time when I was spending all this time with my granny. Mm-hmm. The queen was still alive and there was this massive jubilee for her and she was being celebrated and everybody was, you know, the queen, the queen, the queen. And at the same time, there was this whole scandal going on where a lot of people that came over in the Windrush were being deported and sent back. Mm. And my grandmother was, you know, she kept saying, where's my passport, where's my passport? And she was so worried that they were going to make her go back. And I just thought that you're a queen, you deserve to be celebrated. They, your whole generation of people deserve to be celebrated the same way that the Queen is being celebrated right now. And I was like, "This, you need a jubilee. And in my mind, I was just picturing, you know, her on her throne mm. and everybody celebrating her for all the hard work she put in and the rest of that those people that built up, you know, the country at the time and came to work and, you know faced faced a lot of racial abuse at the time and it was very difficult and she really made something for herself from nothing and she had my mum and my mom had me and now I get to do what I do I could have had a very very different um and you know also could have been amazing life in the Caribbean I mean I would love to be in the Caribbean <laughs> now honey <laughs> um but you know she she thought ahead at such a young age like I was, I'm was. talking about being 18 in the hardest part, you know, mm. and my breakup and how, you know, hard that was for me. Right. And she, her at 18 is like, I'm going to go on a plane and leave everything I know behind. And I just think that's that's very special. That line about you, you transplanted a family tree and I'll carefully carry the seeds. I feel like I have a responsibility, you know. To go to go forward and enjoy my life hmm. because she she made those sacrifices, you know.
1: Hmm. I understand. I really do understand. Um, it seems that you are doing exactly that. Uh,
3: yeah. yeah, I'm having a great
1: time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Olivia. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. And also a big round of applause and a big thank you to Finn Zeferino Birchall. Finn zafferino Birchall, We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. I really enjoyed this
5: conversation.
1: Thanks again to Olivia Dean and her guitarist Finn Zeferino Birchall. Olivia's debut album, Messy, is out now. Hey Brittany. Hey Brittany. Hey Brittany. Hey Brittany, it's West from New York. We all got our Spotify rep this week, which is my favorite holiday of the year. And they have this new weird feature that shows you where geographically other people are that listen to the same type of music as you. I got Burlington, Vermont, which is weird, and a lot of people either got that or Berkeley or Cambridge. What did you get? And it's not accurate, right? Ah oh, <laughs> West. Thank you so much for calling in with this question. This has been on my mind. So for those who don't know, with the Spotify Raft, which is like their year end feature where they show you basically what you've been listening to or what they tell you you've been listening to all year, my top five artists that I listened to this year was fairly accurate. Although I listened to a lot more Steely Dan than they gave me credit for. I just want to say that. But they added a new feature this year where they like show you where other people are who listen to music in the way that you do. The thing is, though, is I, like many people, receive the location of Berkeley, California. But like they also show you three artists that apparently are very popular in that particular area. So the three artists they told me put me in common with Berkeley, California listeners were Victoria Monet, Kalela, who's been on this show, and also Nick Hakim, who I adore. The thing is, though, is that my husband also got Berkeley, California, and he had three completely different artists. And then I saw somebody else who was like, oh, they have me in Berkeley, California, because I listened to Pavement and Fiona Apple, and no disrespect to Fiona Apple. I love her. But I don't really overlap with that person's listening. And I don't overlap that much with my husband's listening. So I'm like, is this just like that one BuzzFeed quiz where it's like, which sex in the city character are you? And then no matter what you put in, everybody gets Miranda. I don't know. But I know that Berkeley, California is not really the town for me. No disrespect whatsoever. I'm an East Coast girly at this point. Does Berkeley really match my music vibe? My conspiracy theory brain tells me that this was a really fun little social media thing that they were doing to get us all talking. That's just my two cents. I would love to hear from the rest of you all, though. Like, what cities did you get? Let me know. Tweet at me or email the show. I'm just nosy. Just let me know. West, thank you so much for kicking off this line of thought. And I hope you have a wonderful weekend. If you have a thought or question about pop culture, send us a voice memo at ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood Alexis Williams Liam McBain Corey Antonio Rose This episode was edited by Jessica
3: Plachek Bilal Qureshi
1: Engineering support came from Gilly Moon Maggie Luthar Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini Our senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.
4: This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com slash thematicinvesting.
2: Last year, over
4: 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.